0: made it overwhelming was it opened my eyes not only from these conversations and from that first one about what was systemically going on around race, but also opening my eyes into areas of sexuality and areas of misogyny in terms of gender. And because what it's it's it, the reason why it's been over so much over, so overwhelming for, for me in a sense is just, is it feels like in all these different areas that I wasn't really aware of that as a white College educated, right-handed, English speaking Christian male who's heterosexual. Like literally everything has been made with me in mind. Now, maybe not me, Sean McCoy, but even down to my height, even the way that things are, the size of things, the way the cars are designed, the way the chairs are designed, the way that all these things are designed, and then also the system that has been in charge of that design, in charge of implementing the design, in charge of sustaining the design, the system, ballers of the stuff has been somebody just like me with me in mind. And there was a series, so as this podcast hit out, uh, and what really triggered some of that, uh, that started to open my mind around that was, and brought the past into the present for me, was when my buddy Jim talked about, uh, he talked about the history in America of African-Americans, and then being a history buff, and being a minor in college in history, I was like, oh, I know this. I know, I know this, right? There's slavery, and then we realized that was wrong, and then we had the Civil War, I got it, okay. And there was new Jim Crow, you know, Reconstruction, and we had this transition period that, that culminated in the '60s with us trying to again right, align the, align the values with the core of what this country was supposed to be when it started. And then when he talked about mass incarceration, it this was the moment that I was like, "What? What do you What, what do you mean? Just I mean people are in prison because I did something wrong, right? And if, if we all have the same laws, all the things are set up that way. Just kind of this kind of some of this. Some of the rhetoric you hear, and and I don't, uh, I don't know how often or how it was. It was definitely part of my mantra was, you know, if you don't break the law, you don't go to jail. If you don't, if you don't do these things wrong, you stay out of trouble. Then you don't have to worry about that. that. Doesn't that's not something to bring you down. And then it, you know, and then on some level, maybe a belief that if you do have something go wrong, there's an element that there's supposed to be some part of the penal system that says hey, you're debt to society, and then you come, you know, you come back. And so when you saw about this mass incarceration thing, and I just thought, I was like, what, what are you talking about? And it was the book, The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander that he recommended that I, I then read uh, subsequently. And it was that during that book that I started to realize, and, and like any other book, like anything else, uh, you, know, there's, you can look up, it seems like any story, which is part of the madness, I think. You're going to find something somewhere that's going to either say it wasn't true, or they're going to contradict it, or this isn't complete. Taking this into account in terms of the gist of the book and, and not saying that it is inerrant, I'm not saying it's inerrant, but the, the, but the parts of the, the book that I could not deny.
1: Put your hands in the soil, feel the groan, feel the joy, all sit with the hurt, stare into the dirt, occupy the bandstands, gather lost citizens.
2: Well, hey there, how are you? I'm Seth. This is the Can I Say This at Church podcast. Thank you for downloading today. And I'm going to thank you in advance for telling a friend about the show. I also want to, again, thank you for allowing me the wiggle room to do a one week on, one week off during the summer. I have really enjoyed laughter and bedtime stories with my kids and the little bit more flexibility that it allows. And so thank you for your patience with me. And um, I hope that you are also taking some time for yourself This summer to recharge and reconnect with whatever that is. God, your family, yourself, your work, whatever you find passion in. I want to approach today's conversation with a little bit of trepidation and I'll tell you why. The world is still so angry and rightfully so about the injustices that exist not only in our country but in many. The excessive abuse of power from those that have it. Racism the misunderstandings between patriotism and nationalism, just so, so much. And what you'll hear is people say, nobody's racist, or all people are racist, or all lives matter, or black lives matter. And I want to be extremely clear, black lives matter. And so I have a friend, friend of the show, Sean McCoy, and we've had conversations you know, via phone, via text, about privilege. And uh, Sean began to tell me a bit about you know, a realization that he had in his life of white privilege and, and what that means, and the now what. And I'm aware of how hard it is for two white people to have a conversation about race. But at the advisement of many of my black friends have been told white people have to speak into the circles that we're in. And I think what Sean brings to the table here is extremely important in that. White privilege exists. The world is built for white privilege. And I think you're going to hear a bit of that unfold as this conversation happens. So stay with us. Thanks for listening. And here we go.
1: Clap your hands to your mouth. Let your pride go south. Put your hand on your head. Make terms with the dead. Put your hands on your face, too late to learn from my mistakes, put your hand on your heart, can we stop what we start? Sisters to the leverage, brothers to the edges, youth to the floor.
2: Sean McCoy, welcome to the podcast, man. Happy to have you on.
0: Brother, it's an honor and I appreciate the invite. Yeah,
2: yeah. So, I'm going to do something different. Normally I have people tell us about themselves and I'll, I'll do that in a minute, but you also host a podcast and on that podcast, you always have a random, which now I know the book is blue. I literally didn't know what it's called. You just had people pick random numbers and yeah. answer these like tabletop kind of icebreaker questions and they're hilarious. I love the questions. Um, yeah. So I'm going to make you do that. How about you pick one or two of those at random, whatever the number is, or I can just give you a number and you can go with sure. that question. What do you want to do?
0: Give me a number and I'll, that sounds great. 17. 17. Nobody right.
2: ever goes low. I've noticed people are like way right. up there in the thousands.
0: Right, right, right. <laughs> so the question is Would you rather own your own sports team on a losing streak or own a successful chain of restaurants? I would say for sure a successful chain of restaurants, uh. mainly because. My first image is uh, a place. I mean, the podcast I was come to the table. Typically, when you do that, one of the best ways to do it is over food, right? Mm-hmm. And so, if you could have a chain of restaurants that were able to create that environment, I think that would be uh, heaven on earth for me. For so you sure. don't want
2: to buy the Browns?
0: No, no. I've had a, I've had a real I've had a, it's kind of part of this journey, but I've had a real deconstruction. The the famous word, but I've had a lot of that in the. I used to be a massive pro sports fan. Uh-huh. I'm I'm not so much anymore.
2: Oh, that's so. too bad. And then how about one more? So like it goes to 2,000, right? Yes, sir. How about just, how about just 2,000?
0: 2,000 works. 2,000 is, would you rather bite an uncooked potato or Brussels sprout? <laughs> I, are they I would both rather, uncooked? yeah, I would <laughs> rather cook anything or I would rather eat anything that was not a Brussels sprout. So uncooked potato <laughs> or not. Those questions are remember, so random. Right. They're, yeah. And it's, and it's meant, you know, it's meant to, and you'll learn this cause you, I, I've i to put it out there to the world for your fans. I asked you to be my hundredth guest when I have my hundredth conversation, which is mm-hmm. coming up here soon. And so part of that is to get, is to go beyond just the person in terms of a title or who they are, a banker, mm-hmm. a podcast host, or, or even the topic we're going to talk about. It's to show, try to show the humanity side of people and that there's maybe you agree, or maybe it's a fascinating kind of a goofy answer, but you get to know the person a little bit more intimate is the idea.
2: I gotta say, I would buy the Browns because <laughs> I I want a project. I really want to win here. I feel like I feel like when you don't win any games, I can do this. We just need one. I just need one, and I'll count it as a success. And then I'll sell it, take the capital gains, and then do whatever I want to do.
0: <laughs> it's like a Wayne Heisinga kind of thing. Back when, see, I used to be a huge fan. So like, I remember the fire. So the Martin Dolphins, then, right? Well, he he was the blockbuster magnate that owned the Marlins when they beat. um, Mm. It was uh, Cleveland. It was actually Cleveland. It was the Indians Mm. in the World Series. And I remember Jay Powell was the winning Game 7 pitcher. And I actually waited on him not too long after that in Houston, uh, when he was pitching for Houston. And after I got out of the Navy, and he he was talking about how bad he felt. But everybody, there's so much much negativity around that that roster and those Mm -hmm. players when they had no control over what the, the team was doing.
2: I used to indirectly work for Wayne Huizinga. So in, out of college, right, like I was looking for any job, really, because Sally Mae doesn't care if you have a job or not. You you borrowed money. They're like the mafia. Uh, and so I worked for Swisher Hygiene, which was he owned Swisher Hygiene. It was a huge thing. I don't even know why. And they like a competitor of Ecolab, basically. And so I'd pedal around chemicals in restaurants or that type of stuff, oddly enough. It's just a name I haven't heard in forever, Wayne Huizinga, So, Yeah.
0: Yeah. How'd you do in sales? How'd you do on the sales side? Did you
2: uh, I was I've always been pretty good at sales. I, I think part of it is because I usually learn what I need to know about the product. And I also almost and I still do this as a bank. So like I have an account at nine different banks because I want to know what their online banking does, how their bill pay service works, so that when people tell me, well, this one does this, does it though? Let's together log in and let's put apples to apples and then I'm gonna tell you if you're wrong. And if you're wrong though. Sean, I'm going to need you to trust me from now on. Like I've earned, (laughs) like, I know what I'm talking about. And if I don't know, I'll tell you, I don't know. And I find that I just earn people's trust that way. But it's a lot of work on my end to literally do all the research, but that's okay.
0: I hear you. It's, it's your ability to take the pain away of the customer is a, is a wonderful thing to be able to do for sure.
2: So tell us a bit about you. What should people know about you?
0: I think, I think first and foremost, um, uh, that I believe in. I believe in love. I believe in the the tenets of what it means to follow Christ. That I that I'm just I'm here like anybody else in this position. That it, especially around this topic, that wants you know I don't I don't. There's that's not, not an ego thing to want to be heard. It's just more of a. I see this an amazing collaboration out there with people that we have an opportunity to really come together as a community and, and not just have all that be jargon. that mm-hmm. some of those they can be high in words. They can they can feel like really, you know big principles or big over you know meta type things that sound really great, but in the real world down in the brass tacks to use kind of the, get to the banking side a little bit, that they don't really, that they're not really true. I, I value, I do believe in those things. Mm-hmm. I, I do believe in those things as far as what they mean. I do believe that, you know, sacrifice matters and effort matters and kindness matters. And that those are the, those are the, the weapons, if you will, those are the things that really at the end of the day, uh, mean more than anything else. And, uh, you know, part of my journey into my faith, which was older, which was in my early thirties. I mean, the book that brought me to uh, to that was Ecclesiastes. It wasn't anything in the new Testament. It was this, it was this having seen the real world kind of fail in a, in a material sense and all the things that I was built up to to learn that this mm-hmm. is what was important. Wasn't that actually it was meaningless, meaningless, meaningless mm-hmm. without, without the divine in there. And so, so I believe in all that and and I just I just believe in the power of people and I do believe that uh I don't I don't believe this is an accident. That's what I'd want people to know about me.
2: I like that. I was I was listening to listening I guess maybe yeah maybe listening to Ecclesiastes today. So I have that honest discussions group. I don't know if you're ever in that or not, but someone posted something in there about Ecclesiastes and, and X, Y, or Z and somehow or another, oh no, they posted a picture of the pale blue dot and that huge beautiful thing that Carl Sagan basically wrote about the blue, you know, the pale blue dot photo. <laughs> and I'd asked him, I was like, you know, have you, have you heard the, the vapor meditation from Gungor um, from years ago? I don't know if you've ever heard it or not. Um, it's so it's like nine minutes long, but it starts out with meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Wait, wait, wait,
0: wait. Oh, it's a song. No, you played. Yeah, I have. I have it on my Spotify.
2: Uh, maybe I played it. I don't know. Yeah. Is it, is it
0: on one of your Spotify play? It's on your Spotify. playlist. Mm,
2: I don't think I've ever used it in an episode, but I probably have put it on the playlist. Um, but yeah, it's great. It's like nine and a half minutes long, but it yeah, keeps yeah, yeah, on yeah, yeah. going. Yeah. And go. You know, it it uses that, but it made me be, again listen to it again, Uh and I forgot how good it was. It's been years since I listened to it.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm not, yeah, I'm. I'm. Now that you say that, I didn't recognize some of those. Some of those songs like that, or some of those those works, pieces of work. I I just remember. I know the song where it is on my. It flows mm-hmm. through like a playlist. Mm-hmm. Now that you say that? Not yeah, I do. No, I do know that, and I think I got it from you.
2: <laughs> Maybe who tells? Who knows? We were going to talk today about privilege, and so we'll just name that. Um, you've you've referenced it a minute ago, so I'll just go ahead and name that. And so I think it would be good to start with just a definition of that. Like when we say privilege, what do you mean? And then we'll just go from wherever it goes from there.
0: Well, in in typical fashion of where I kind of where my head goes, I actually as part of this preparatory work, I actually wanted to do. Uh, I write some stuff down because I know these uh, this particular subject in this particular area. You can get off off center really quickly, and mm. I I love tangents. So I actually did write, write I wrote down the definition of it here. So I'll read it to you. So privilege is a special right, advantage, or immunity granted or available only to a particular person or group. Mm. So that's the actual definition in terms of that. And then as far as where where I think it, in in terms of how it translates, I think it translates specifically to this, this subject around, we, we hear this word now, and it has become polarized. It was polarizing for me. And part of why I wanted to come on was I spent up until I would say extremely, very recently in the last couple of years, never understanding how that word applied to me personally. And that I I saw it applying to everybody, to a lot of other people and to most other people in a lot of different ways, but my own introspect, my own journey on what that word meant to me. I, I didn't see it. It was, a, it was a blind spot in my world. And so when you were, when you were talking around this subject and some of the, it was, it was around some of the episodes you released and some of the special ones you released around the current atmosphere and things that are happening mm-hmm. in real time, I just had this kind of overwhelming feeling. And I kind of joked with you that I took upon the privilege of knowing you to basically reach out to you and say, hey, I, I, I have this stirring and I, I kind of want to talk about this subject. But the ideal way to do it would be to come on your, your show and want to wait to do my show a little bit in a different formula. Yeah. Because I because really the I to that my show is designed to do that is designed. And my, my intent is my very first episode, you saw my first episodes earlier. I went back in preparation for this and listened to all the episodes I have about race in any way, which includes the first one. And I had to go back and listen to the rookie episode as a podcaster and just cringe yeah. at <laughs> all of the mistakes and all of the, and then, and then even, in, I think the other thing that's really tough is going back and listening to yourself talk is that it's a captured in time. And as you, even mm-hmm. though it's been a couple of years, the exponential changes that you can have in perspective, Yeah, hear yourself say things, right. I'm sure there's going to become a day where I listen to this again and go, Oh, wow. <laughs> right. Yeah. And it's, and it's not a right or wrong as much as it's just an incomplete. And then when you see, when you hear yourself talk, you go back and listen to something that you said, and, you, and it, again, it's not a right or wrong. It's just, you start to realize, wow, I didn't, I wasn't quite aware of certain things at that moment. Mm-hmm. And then, and then the, um, uh, the incompleteness, if you will, shows.
2: So what did you hear? And I, I don't think I've ever listened to your first episode. I think the first episode of your show I ever listened to was actually Alexander Shia's. And then since then, I'll catch them as they come out. Um, cause Alexander yeah, just draws a crowd. I listen to everything he does. Um, but Yeah.
0: I have a Spotify playlist dedicated to just him. Like I have every, re- <laughs> <laughs> re- was when I first came across him on Nomad, uh, that was what I, I went down the same road as you did, mm-hmm. uh, what you're talking about and just like wanted to to do that. And for your podcast to be, you know, to be um, clear as well. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, 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 I try to go back. Like I, if I find myself, I'll go back and listen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm kind of, I'm a Johnny come lately. And that's one of the things about podcasting, especially as, you know, we get into these episode numbers that are long I have over I've I've done not quite a hundred conversations, but I've had over a hundred episodes for a mm-hmm. couple of different reasons. So going back and listening to all that, or even expecting somebody to listen to every single one, that's gonna take a little while. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah. 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 So that first episode you said that you went back to and you listened to some of the stuff you said, what did you find where you're like, that's not true for me anymore?
0: It was specifically around well, it's it's not even around truth, it's more around the awareness. Mm-hmm. And it and it really was the crux of uh of where this journey for me to understand privilege started and it was in a comment that he i was very i found myself very uh aware of, of listening to myself of, of wanting to make it this fair and equitable thing i said this phrase to be fair like about a thousand times and i just wanted to just you know talk about editing and then i, and I did it for the first you know three or four episodes i was really big on that for some reason because it was part of the part of the belief i had at the time that if we just were fair and everybody got it if we just understood that and everybody got their their moment at the table. If everybody could hear everybody else's story, there would be this opportunity for coming together and you would appreciate somebody else's point of view versus it being something that was polarizing. And so I think having a little bit of that and then uh, little things around um, some, some again, some naivete, some some perspectives that I said, especially around race, around uh, you know, opportunities to explore those, those subjects. I just kind of went a little bit textbook, for lack of a better word, mm-hmm. some of the things that were were kind of still ingrained in me in terms of my perspective at that time around, around what was or was not okay and I, I guess a specific example to help you and i did it for the because two of the first four episodes were about race one was mm. with my buddy jim and one was with my childhood friend larry and i found myself for like wanting to kind of make the point around shootings at the time which were predominant that uh Philando castile's case at the time which was which and it was another thing was interesting by going back and listening is the the fervor and the and the I can't believe this is happening and I can't believe this is happening in 2017, mm. that language was the same three, almost three years ago as it was today. Like yeah. it did, you could have taken that episode in a sense and just plopped it into right now. Yeah. So, so I found myself, I could hear myself and I knew from my time back then that I was looking at dis, to discern and delineate. So Philando Castile was a guy who had a concealed hand, handgun uh, license, was trying to show a police officer that and got shot kind of for no reason. If you go back and look at the physical evidence and kind of the, the case around Michael Brown and the fact that he committed a strong armor robbery, the fact that he, the, evidence, the physical evidence showed that he uh, was, was aggressive towards the police officer, that in my mind, um, those two things should, we should be able to agree that those were two separate instances in terms of how people should react. Mm-hmm. And then I didn't look at it as one big problem. I looked at it as individual and we'll just take it all like a case by case basis, which mm-hmm. is kind of the, language and then in the nomenclature and the idea is part of the part of our think part of our experiences is you don't lump it all into one thing and that was kind of part of the narrative that I believed in so I think hearing myself talk uh, in that context and kind of and I didn't like make a case per se but I knew where I was coming from and those those in that verbiage and just not being aware of of some of the systemic issues that were there
2: I have a similar um, so I've recently gone back every day I look at my old Facebook memories and I'll look at what I used to say because you can go back as I've been on Facebook since you had to be at a university to be on Facebook, like you know, back, back when it was literally well. just for colleges. Um, and you can go back and back and back. And part of me is ashamed of what I used to believe, and the other part of me is like, eh, if I didn't, if I, if, I if, that, if that didn't happen then, maybe I wouldn't be where I'm at now. And so I'm also proud of the growth, but I also really want to censor what I put on Facebook. <laughs> I have actually just been deleting them. And like, I look at it, I'm like. Yeah, that happened. Delete. Um, which you can't really do with a the podcast. They're they're out there. It's <laughs> <laughs> it's on the internet. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And re- probably the other thing's still there now. Um, so in your text, you had talked about that in your journey, you went from denying privilege to being overwhelmed by it. What do you mean denying privilege? Because I think overwhelmed, actually, what do you mean by both of those?
0: Well, denying is, in, so I think, the best place to do uh, and, I, and I want a little, a little disclaimer and a little bit of an homage to our friend Alexander. You know, the, really, what I hope to do more than anything is to start this by inviting people to come in and inviting them to kind of come along with this journey as well, and just asking people to uh, to, to let love lead in a way and and just stay stay with it, stay the course a little bit, and understand that there may be topics and there may be things you don't agree with. I may say things that are wrong. All these rest of these things. Just just hold and if you can just stick with us and understand that the intent. Uh, Throughout this journey is to just give kind of my 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 part of it, but also to to deliver this in a sense of not accusatory or trying to do it right from wrong. Mm -hmm. I very much agree with the trying to obliterate dualism and stuff like that. It's just more of an awareness back to that incompleteness. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really important to, in my world, to kind of discern where kind of my starting point. We're 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 all kind of born into this world at some point. We have our perspectives, and we only know what we know, and it's typically never. And these are all cliches, but there's a reason. You know, you don't know what you don't know. I, I can remember vividly as a kid uh, being absolutely appalled by the idea of discriminating against anybody for any reason—gender, uh, race, the rest of this stuff. It didn't make any sense. And as somebody who, grew, who was born in 1974 and kind of came into the uh, my awareness in the, in the early to mid '80s, and having a, a love for history and and, then, and understanding what was behind in terms of time, there was this assumption that I had that we had gone past the civil rights movement. We'd gone past genocide in World War II. We'd gone past the Civil War. We'd gone past giving women the right to vote. We'd gone past so many of these things and that were from before, and there was almost this kind of mutual agreement that we were trying to head towards a different place as a group mm-hmm. and as a culture. And so it was it was this thing that used to be, and we were no longer, and almost like this again, everybody kind of agreed, and we didn't want to be that way anymore. It didn't take long to understand that the Trail of Tears wasn't a good idea, to say the least. There was so many aspects of our history throughout, even going back before the United States, colonial, back wherever, as far back as you want to go. Man, they just had it wrong, and now we have this right perspective, and we're going to go forward, mm-hmm. and almost in this evolutionary side, because, again, I didn't have a strong – had no faith back, uh, upbringing. So knowledge and wisdom was the, was the religion I grew up on. And the basis of that religion is the more you learn – the smarter you get, the more open your mind gets and then off you go. And so you're on this journey. So, so in that perspective, now me personally at the same time growing up where I did in an affluent area of, of, of in Missouri city Sugarland and outside of Houston, my family was not, and not only were we not affluent and not, not doing well uh, uh, economically in that world. Uh, my mother still to this day suffers from alcoholism, um, pretty good chance. I'm going to lose my brother to alcoholism. I almost lost my sister to alcoholism. I, I have, I have seen the, I've seen the other side of, uh, or been involved or been very much involved in this massively dysfunctional family, a massively socioeconomically challenged world where the worth or the self worth of who I was in my social world, in my, my, amongst my peers was strictly economic and strictly social in that sense. So so in terms of that became kind of the, the, the goal was if I can get myself up economically and out of this world, it can reset who I, am, who I am and my self-worth amongst these people to the point where I can take you to the spot where I, was at, where I was in middle school the day that I finally had Levi's instead of Wranglers. Hmm. And a kid noticed, the guy that I know, and I could tell you his name, I still know him, and basically was looking at me to see what I was wearing. And when it was a, when it was a V instead of a W... It was like a little bit of a shift in who I was in this person who I had known all my life. Like mm-hmm. that, you know, my self worth had changed. If I did really good at sports, my self worth could change. I saw people their their status amongst the social world that I grew up in was augmented either through you know, success in sports and, and, and doing that, or or economically, and so that that became my reality. And then I, I don't want to say, for lack of a better word, my suffering where I where I. Grew had to go up against things that I was not ready for, prepared for. was a combination of uh, really, really tough economic times. My dad was in the old business. Um, when the bust hit in 84, uh, we went from having a Porsche and a really nice Oldsmobile mm-hmm. to those cars getting repossessed and to having electricity cut off and having constables show up at the door asking for my dad in the middle of the night, having the, you know, my dad stealing cable, all, all this crazy stuff that was all economically driven and at the same time in the public eye watching uh, the world kind of change from a, from a media standpoint and TV getting greater and greater in terms of an influence you know things like MTV and VH1 and different alternative channels and people that dress differently and, and just and were all out there in the world and so I saw growing up I didn't see limitations in who could be out there. NWA was out there making money. Sir Mix-a-Lot was out there making money LL Cool J was out there making money. There was professional athletes that were making money. There was entertainers are making money that were of all kinds of races, not just Mm African-American. And so to me, it seemed like, uh, and this may, and it may seem extremely naive and it wasn't that it was, and it wasn't that I was growing up in this racial utopia either. Uh, You know, people would say things and make comments every once in a while, but, there was guys that dated black girls, black guys who dated white girls that I went to high school with. Nobody said a word about it. Hmm. Uh, there were, there, it just wasn't, it wasn't overwhelming in my experience. Um, and it was limited, and that's, that becomes part of the issue. I didn't see any of that. I saw it all socioeconomically. So that's kind of that, that, that part of it was really, really good. So that, that's really important to understand, I think, for anybody's story around this. Because the, the real issue with the word privilege, I think, when you say it, or when it's said to somebody, is it by default when I when I, if I use that word on you, the typical reaction, especially from "quote unquote" people like me and people, is is it's dismissive of the suffering that I've had? Because in my world, where I've seen privilege, I haven't been a part of it. Mm. I haven't. I'm not. The privilege is over here, and it's economic. I haven't. I mean, I'm. I'm told I can't go somewhere. I'm told I can't go here. I, had, I went to the military when I was eighteen. And it started all over again with the with the entire hierarchy of the military. Like I saw, where a lack of social or of economic benefit in my world limited who I was in my self worth in other people's eyes. And then I still had all and then all this dysfunction around uh, in my family around substance abuse and things of that nature. I just I would as soon as you would say privilege, it would it would rackle. it Like the hairs in the back of my neck would stand up, and I would like you want me to show you privilege. I will be let me take you down my road of privilege. And that was. And, and I had, I didn't understand. I wasn't fully aware of it,
2: what I meant by. Hearing yourself say all that. If I said so, that, so, I have quite a few friends that are not white. And I'm aware of just how, what's the word I want to put? I'm aware of just how hard it is for two white guys to have a conversation about privilege. So I just want to get right. that out in the air. Um, but I think the only way to do it, I actually asked a friend of mine today. I was like, you know, how do I do this? He's like, you just, you need to be honest. And where you have screwed up. You just need to own that, and ask for and 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 literally l- lament with it and repent from it. You, you literally can't stand up there acting like you've done nothing, even if you think you've done nothing. Like you've got to recognize, you know, privilege and and racism in your own life. So, hearing you say all that, if I said that to someone sitting at my desk, they're going to get real defensive and be like, "I still don't have privilege. Like I'm living paycheck to paycheck. How the heck do I possibly have privilege?" So. What would you say to something like that?
0: Well, so I think the, the real, the opportunity is to take a step back. The opportunity is to recognize that it is that it is loaded language and I don't think we should avoid it. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, it, it, to your point, we need to sit in where it's uncomfortable. I think we have a, a a human problem, especially in our culture, that we are constantly trying to find comfort. And so we, we don't want things to be discomfort. I just, I was talking to some friends of mine today about this as well, because I've been you know, preparing, if you will, and one of them said, whatever you do, don't do what Louis Giglio You <laughs> talking about. Uh, he said, can we just call it White Blessing? Oh, instead? my gosh.
2: I I was sitting 10 feet away from where I'm at now last night. And I had one of my good friends who happens to be black on a headset. So we, we, we pop on Xbox and half the time we're not playing any games. We're just talking. But it's a good place for like 10 people to get together. And we've all known each other for decades. And I was like, so Louis Giglio just said this and I won't say what he said. And I was like, he's like, that can't be true. I was like, let me send you the link. And he's like, I, I can't believe what I'm watching, right? And you're just so, <laughs> anxious, so mad. He's like, I was like, what do you want to say to that? He's like, a lot of things. What are you going to say? I was like, I, I don't even know. I don't know what to say to that.
0: Well, I think what, what we should say is it's a result of us of just not, it's just that uncomfortableness. It's a little bit there. I had my pastor reach out to me a couple of weeks ago he was going to a, to a meeting, uh, interfaith, interracial, and he was like, hey, uh, I know you've chewed some of this dirt. What, what do I say? What, what, what questions do I ask? What are these things that I did? What, what should I do? And I just told him, I said, well, what you should do more than anything is not ask any questions. What you should do is just listen. And what you should do is just do what you said before. You have, to, you have to rest and understand that it's going to, it's going to suck. It's going to be difficult. It's gonna, it's gonna be like swallowing something that's dry. That you, it's that, it's the old commercial with the chocolate chip cookies and the no milk. Like if you're trying to swallow like a peanut butter, it's just that, because it just it, in your soul, especially if you're, I believe, in, and, I, and I do believe that most people are, in the end, the nature of them is is all over the place. And so by saying something in terms of, and, and kind of being almost specific, saying that you are privileged and ergo, you haven't suffered ergo, and if you haven't, and not only have you not, if you not suffered like I have. You're the reason I have suffered. And I'm like, it comes that whole thing about, why well, I didn't own slaves and I didn't do mm-hmm. this. And, and it's it this peculiar institution. It's this weird thing over there. Let's call it something else besides what it is. It is what it is. Call it what it is. And, I, and just and understand that you're going to have to work at it. There's going to have to be effort done by us to get through that. So then there's a situation where there's a person in front of you who you ultimately care about too. Why guys sit around, maybe it's an older person, younger person, some of you care about of any any color it could be a woman it could be anybody, and here they and if you start to have this conversation, first of all the relationship has to be strong enough for you to endure the work to go through that, mm-hmm. because it, it is going to probably create tension and it's supposed to. We have to stop trying to find the easy button. We have to stop trying to find the efficiency of it, and we need to lament and we need to we need to be in the middle of it. And that was something that I was willing to do on like everything else. I mean, like I said, my show, I started out wanting to have this conversation. I want to get in the deep end. I read books with no pictures about history when I was in my twenties on where we else, I mean, I'm not, it doesn't make me a special person, but the rest of the guys are checking out porn. Not that I didn't look at it, the rest of that stuff. When I'm over there reading all these, like, and I want to get into the deep end. Mm-hmm. It's the reason I started my show, mm-hmm. but I, I didn't understand. I wasn't fully aware of, of the entire picture I thought we were in a different place. Mm-hmm. And I say all that to say that maybe the place to start, because the place to start isn't your privilege, Seth, and you've had stuff that I haven't. And that's why things are the way they are. And it's you that have caused this. Mm-hmm. Maybe a simpler place and where I've found a little bit of success recently, especially in this subject, because I had this topic with some guys that are old enough to be my dad. I, I made the point to a gentleman. I said, well, you know, do you remember the movie Saving Private Ryan? He's like, I love that movie. I was like, do you remember the sniper? He goes, yeah, yeah. I go, do you remember anything about the way that he shot that gun? He goes, I remember it was kind of different, but I I don't remember much about it. I said, I go, he's left-handed. He's like, well, What do you mean? I go, he's left-handed. Did you know that he was left-handed? He's like, No, I don't remember that. He just he just moved the bolt back. Now, we're up in Texas, it's kind of this rite of passage. We for whatever reason, we especially in my house, I knew what guns were, very well aware of them. A bolt action rifle. Is is made, I mean it was from the origins was made for right-handed people. Mm-hmm. Why? Because the predominant number of people were right-handed. And the guy shooting is left-handed. And so starting with something as simple as right or left-handed and asking somebody that you know is right or this left hander or different hand than you, what that world is like. And getting that just that simple perspective on, on a different viewpoint that it is, it is something that in itself is arbitrary. Even though there is some of that with that, there are people, if you go back you know, not too far, 30, 40 years, there were people that were that would try to get people not to write with their left hand because there was some association with that as something negative. Mm-hmm. Now, not so much. Not, a, not at all. We've kind of got past that. But even something as simple as that, we looked at as something as, a, as, a, as an opportunity to define right or wrong based on something as simple as left or right-handed. But that aside... When I start to recognize that something as simple as the, the cars that I drive, the things that I pick up uh, are built for me and how the fact that I'm right-handed, that's a place sometimes that you can start. Or for somebody like you and I, the English language. Uh, I've, I've been fortunate to travel 33 countries in my life so far between the military and oil and gas. And I've, and I've done business presentations in China speaking English. I've done business presentations in South America, in another person's country, and all I could speak was English and it wasn't a problem. I've done this all over the world, and it's not a problem and it's not because English is the greatest language. it's not because it's the best language by no stretch or means is it but I have been fortunate that the that the the preference of the that part of my life is a is a overwhelming preference in terms of the world, in terms mm-hmm. of how we speak, in terms of how we communicate. So I think before it gets into the part of whether or not you're a racist or you don't like black people or you don't like the rest of this stuff, part of that introspection has to be looking within these elements of so something as simple as those kinds of things and asking yourself how that's impacted your life on even the, even the simplest of levels.
2: So at my bank today, um, first off, I didn't have any computer network access to anything. So everything was printed out and faxed to me that I needed. Internal errors, I don't know, it doesn't matter. Hopefully it's fixed tomorrow because I'm really getting angry. It's been like two days <laughs> now in a row. It's hard to do my job with no access to the anything, to the outside world. But um, our company, uh, just because uh, there's just so much going on, all the riots, the, the world is... And, and honestly, as I've spoken with so many of my staff, because when you can't help clients because you're in quarantine and we just went into opening 2A in Virginia here on, yet today... Uh, no, on Monday uh, is today. What is today? today's Tuesday? All the days blend together that, that we're not, la- not seeing a lot of people compounded with the fact that we literally can't help the people that we said we could because I can't make the computer print anything or even access your accounts. Um, we've had a lot of conversation about all that. And we talked about privilege a bit today um, because our company decided that they were going to listen and intentionally solicit feedback from Everybody in the, insti- in the in the in um, the in the institution of the of the bank and basically say, what are we doing wrong? How do we not recognize privilege well? How are we recognizing it um, poorly? I'm not saying any of that right, but you know what I mean. Like they're they're, they're yeah. literally trying, and a lot of people do that and give it lip service. And then they came out today and said, hey, we heard what you said. Juneteenth is a thing that kept coming up. We didn't know what it was. We're sorry, and we now know that it is. And so we're closing early on Friday, and we're just observing it as like a company holiday, like it's we can do something and we will do something and effective in three days. Everybody needs to. And then it went on to define what it was. And so all day today, all I've talked about um, is what this is. Um, And every single person in the bank. Now in in the branch, I have someone from Puerto Rico, I have an African-American, I have an Asian-American, and then the rest of us are white people. And no one except for me, and this is because of the books that I've read, had any idea what it was. And Every, all day long. That's all we spoke about, um, all day long. And then every single one of them said, what else have I not been told? And so that's literally all we talked about yet. Yeah, the history though, it matters. You said something earlier though, about, um, knowing someone well enough that you can work through like all of that messiness when you start going through it. And I think you're right. Like without any proximity. Um, and that goes for any bigotry, if that's racism, if it's sexism, if it's, um, Genderism, and that's not a word, but I'm going to make it one. If it's anything like that, um, if you don't have any proximity, you 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 can't recognize any any injustices. So you talk about as well in your text of being overwhelmed once you realized that you were I don't, is succumbing to privilege. The right word, like I don't know the best way that you would say that. Like overwhelmed, how so? And then kind of, can you walk me through like that realization and what that what that changed.
0: So it's in terms of being overwhelmed uh, and it was more of the, it was the revelation for me of, of what, or my privilege was. So all that stuff to be said before. And then I also was very, very keen on the law. Like I was very, very keen on following the rules. It was always my thing. I never saw it as something that was a negative. And if we just all follow the rules, they're, they're meant to be equitable. That all these things have been passed before are meant to try to get things even because we're, we all believe in this justice thing. Well, what made it overwhelming was it opened my eyes, not only from these conversations and from that first one about what was systemically going on around race, but also opening my eyes into areas of sexuality and areas of misogyny in terms of gender. And because what it's, it's it, the reason why it's been over so much over, so overwhelming from, for me in a sense is, just, is it feels like in all these different areas that I wasn't really aware of that as a white, college-educated, right-handed, English-speaking Christian male who's heterosexual, like literally everything has been made with me in mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe not me, Sean McCoy, but even down to my height, even the way that things are, the size of things, the way the cars are designed, the way the chairs are designed, the way that all these things are designed, and then also the system that has been in charge of that design, in charge of implementing the design, in charge of sustaining the design, the system, by all this stuff, has been somebody just like me with me in mind. And there was a series. So as this podcast hit out uh, and what really triggered some of that, uh, that started to open my mind around that was and brought the past into the present for me was when my buddy Jim talked about, uh, he talked about the history in America of African-Americans and being a history buff and being a minor in college in history. I was like, Oh, I know this. I know, I know this, right. There's slavery and then we realized that was wrong. And then we had the civil war. I got it. Okay. And there was new Jim Crow, you know, Reconstruction, and we had this transition period that, that culminated in the '60s with us trying to again right, align the, align the values with the core of what this country was supposed to be. When it started, and then when he talked about mass incarceration, it this was the moment that I was like, "What? Hmm. What do you what, what do you mean? Just I mean people are in prison because I did something wrong, hmm. right? And if, if we all have the same laws, all the things are set up that way. Just kind of this kind of some of this some of the rhetoric you hear, and, and I don't, uh, I don't know how often or how I mean, it was, it was definitely part of my mantra was, you know, if you don't break the law, you don't go to jail. If you don't, if you don't do these things wrong, you stay out of trouble, then you don't have to worry about that. that doesn't, that's not something to bring you down. And then it, you know, and then on some level, maybe a belief that if you do have something go wrong, there's an element that there's supposed to be some part of the penal system that says, pay hey, your debt to society and then you come, you know, you come back. And so when you saw about this mass incarceration thing, and I just thought, I was like, what, what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. And it was the book, The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander that he recommended that I, I then read uh, subsequently. And it was that during that book that I started to realize, and like any other book, like anything else, uh, you, know, there's, you can look up, it seems like any story, which is part of the madness, I think. You're going to find something somewhere that's going to either say it wasn't true, or they're going to contradict it, or this isn't complete taking this into account in terms of the gist of the book and and not saying that it is inerrant. I'm not saying it's inerrant. It's very good. But the the parts of the the book that I could not deny as I go back and validate was the timing of the drug war was the fact that knowing as much as I wanted things to be okay. And felt if my mom would just stop doing, if my mom would just stop drinking, everything would be fine. And that was her choice. And she was choosing to do that. Everybody else is making these choices, not understanding the mental health side of things. Taking a very very long time to see alcoholism and things like that, and addiction as a disease, not as a choice, as well. All culminating in the fact that there was this other system that was being defined for me. And I think one of the most sobering parts of that book was when, in the very beginning, when Michelle Alexander herself, African American woman, lawyer, tra- I mean, formally trained, remember the ACLU is coming off into this uh, into her into a job somewhere, and she saw on this uh, telephone pole it was a it was a pamphlet that was stapled saying something to the effect of War on drugs is the new Jim Crow, and she laughed at it and thought absurd, absolutely absurd. That's there's no way that's the dumbest thing I've ever read. Mm-hmm. It is not that. And she starts her book off that, and then there was other things that started to happen that helped her unpack that and made her help. And was it was the was a catalyst in her understanding her her not understanding that that concept. And so going down this journey with her and listening, and it's a very and what I mean by work as well. I'm talking about reading a book that starts to lay out this extremely strong case that the legal system was that was, was manipulated and the war on drugs was used in such a way to create a pseudo caste system amongst a certain group of people in this country mm-hmm. to maintain the caste system that did exist prior to 1970. And this revelation around it, my, the, the way that it led into my change on how I looked at cannabis, it led into my change in how I look at, Psychedelics—it led to my a massive change in how I looked at what was going on, who was making the decisions, and more importantly, why those decisions were being made from a legislative standpoint. Mm-hmm. Why were the laws going into place? If we're, if we're ultimately, if there's this understood idea that we're supposed to be protecting each other and ourselves, then, then how do how how do you have the opioid crisis? How do you have some of these situations and some of these situations where it seems to be much more monetarily focused than it ever is the benefit of the, of the "quote unquote" people, yeah, and then, and then, really, and it was there was one particular law it was it was that went in in 1986 that it would right correct hit the hit the streets in 85. Um, the war on drugs started before that in the early 70s with Richard Nixon, uh, and then in 1986, this it was the Federal Anti Anti Abuse or Anti Substance Abuse Act, which, from a legislative standpoint, changed the the punishment for an equivalent amount of crack cocaine for an equivalent amount of powdered cocaine. Mm-hmm. So if, if if you and I get caught with the same amount, because it's it's a drug in a different form, there's a five times the penalty for crack for cocaine. But basically the same drug. For the yeah for in yeah. com- from a legal logical kind of like what are we trying to accomplish here? We're trying to get people not to do drugs. And you know, first lady, when I was young, don't you just say no? All right, just say no. Uh, because that's what you do when it comes to the laws, you know, you decide not to go that way. So, okay, I'm, I'm with you, Nancy. We're going to stay away. I, I'm watching my mom deteriorate in front of me for years. You know, doing drugs is a bad thing. And that's the legal drug alcohol. Oh my God, these illegal drugs, they're just tearing apart civilizations and creating crack horrors and all the rest of the stuff that I was programmed and taught as a kid. Don't want that to happen. What, why? And the other part of this too, is as you get older, you start to understand how time, how, how time impacts things. Uh, when you're 10, 12, 14, even 20, you don't you do not really have a, a perspective on time. Mm-hmm. Uh, as somebody at our age, I mean, I can remember 9-11 like it was yesterday. I can know how I felt and I know how, I, how the world feels relative to this now. That's going on 19 years ago. It doesn't seem like 19 years ago. So if you're somebody that's running for office, if you're somebody that's in charge of, uh, if you're a, a representative, if you're somebody that's in a position of power in the 1970s or the 1980s, your 20 years ago was the 60s. Your 30 years ago was the 50s. Your parents, you know, where, where they grew up, was way back in that time period that I thought was way, way back, right? That had gone away. That we had agreed on that had gone away, but all of it. But we, but we keep. But it still seems to be here. I, it was this big disconnect for me, and this book helped me step into the idea of understanding. And it's become the course of the question that I tend to ask around this for people, especially around specifically race or any of these topics. When, when did it change? When did it all of a sudden, when did it all of a sudden be okay? When did all of the vitriol and all of the people willing to, to hang people for because of their sexuality or because of their, because of their race or don't believe that women should vote or don't, where did it all go And When, when did it all of a sudden snap change? Was it because of the 1968 Civil Rights Act? Was that was when everybody went, "Oh, you got me, you got me," and now I, now I have to, now, now I have to let you into my neighborhoods. Now I have to let you date my daughter. Now you're going to be president of the bank that I work for. Now you're going to own the bank. Yeah, is is that the day that everybody agreed and said we're going to go forward? And and so it really made me look at that and and seriously spend a lot of time contemplating, around and chewing that at what it means, and then also looking at the systemic problems that that when you have something like the 1968 Civil Rights Act, which was basically meant for you to vote, and as a felon, the the, the predominant predominant long-lasting things that it takes away if you're convicted of that, of a felony, is your right to vote, is your right to housing, is your right to certain privileges Mm -hmm. and certain rights that we have as American citizens are supposed to be. So if you start to weave this picture that if this system is set up disproportionately, to go after something that really isn't a problem. As you go back and look at the statistics around crime and stuff like that, heading into the 1970s, we didn't have a crime problem. We, we look historically before that, you, we didn't have a crime problem. And then reading this book and then starting to read more and listen more and watch documentary after documentary and read and start to really focus inward on what that meant and how I had to look at it and look at it for what it really was, not for this romantic notion of something that used to be, that mm-hmm. it's still. Here, right, and and almost kind of that investigative, learned thing, and really, and over and over and over again. And then inside of my podcast, to be honest, having I remember having the conversation with my friend Larry about going back to the Michael Brown thing. well You know, Larry, what about what about that? And him just saying he flat out didn't care. He didn't care if Michael Brown was breaking the law. He's like, I just don't, just doesn't, I don't care, because in his world, it had gone on for so long. There had been so many people that had gotten uh treated that way it had no it, There were the, the injustice had gone on for so long and it's so deep and it has been perpetuated since because i'd always hear that oh for 400 years and you know that's been going on for 300 years and that's you know, i'd get my little math history of mine and go well the united states wasn't a country until 1776 you can't really hold us responsible for what happened before yeah. that because we're a british colony and all these yeah. nerdy kind of technical details in the end none of that stuff mattered in terms of the culture the programming what was going on and what people were wanting and what we were doing as a, as a group and as a society and how we were treating each other. Yeah. Who, who was King and who was president didn't matter at that point. So it, it forced me to look at, and then on top of all of that now, okay, if I'm if I, if, I, if I miss this. if while I was thinking we're trying to do the right thing and everybody's going to you know walk the line, the game was rigged against a certain group of people. Mm-hmm. And then also understanding back to the socioeconomic side, if I seen people that I know getting on with that leg, the people that I saw that were privileged, they got a leg up because their parents were in a certain position or had the opportunities that I didn't have as a whatnot. And yes, I know one of the favorites uh, arguments is, well, what about all the scholarships for colleges that are set up for people? Yes. at 18 years old, me applying for college in 1992, everybody that was, that was, it was in my class that, had all the all the uh could apply for any scholarship that I could and there was a lot of if they were different than me like a minority or a woman there was a lot that they could that I couldn't. Yeah, that's true. But I never saw that as like a I, I don't know. I didn't I didn't see that as, as as discriminatory. I saw it as you now granted it sucked for me at the time. It's kind of your turn in the barrel, so to speak, but I never saw it as like this detriment and, and as a and as a, and as a something that was set up to keep me back. I saw that as trying to give people an opportunity to come forward. It just sucked that it was I just, you know, that it meant that it would bi- bypass me. Yeah. And then, you know what I mean? So it, And so the, all of that started to make, so then I had to start looking internally. What else was I not understanding? What else was I missing? What else didn't I recognize? Where else was my blind spot? And then that's what took me down the road. And then part of it was my journey on my podcast. Cause then I started actually having real conversations, not superficial conversations with people around sexuality and gender. Like my first four podcasts were race, and gender and another one about race and in and, and a, and a, fourth one, I'd never asked my own wife. This is during the me too movement. Uh, and all the and all the around that time, I, I'd never, I'd never asked my wife about her, her experiences as a woman, my own wife. Hmm. I hadn't asked her that. Hey honey, I know you're, you're amazing at your job. Everybody loves you. You've been there almost 30 years. I mean, like literally people fall over, uh, doctors and admitted, I mean, she's, she's beloved at, at her job they are and, they, and everybody loves her but i'd never thought to ask had she ever experienced it. And she's like well yeah yeah i experienced stuff hmm. so where else and that forced me to start to look in myself and my own perspective and where else was my blind spots and it's the toughest thing to do because now you can't run now you can't make excuses really and it's the hardest place to be because you're having to look within yourself as far as where what does that mean for me you know what does that mean for me yeah not and that, and that's and that begins the journey around. And why it's overwhelming it, for me, especially, because then in mean, the sexuality side, I've never had to worry about who I loved, who I found attractive. That was never I was my life has never been in danger for that. My brother, my stepbrother was telling a story when him and his husband were in Berlin and they were considering as part of their vacation in Europe to just jump over to St. Petersburg and see it and come back. The reason they didn't is because they were legitimately concerned. If it was found out you know, that they were that they were homosexual, it could lead. I mean, it could threaten their lives. It could threaten. All, I mean, their safety at the very least, and lead to something that they didn't want. I've never had to worry about that. Like I said, I've traveled all over the world. I never had to worry about whether, who, where, how my sexuality played. It wasn't even on my radar to think about that. Yeah, ever. And so, and so it starts to unpack. And what? And the biggest thing is that it's the flood of what I was saying before about all these things and realizing. Um, it's so much of the world has been set up for me and I've spent a lot of my time lamenting about what I didn't have and what, what, I was, what privileges I didn't have and not recognizing at all the privileges that I did.
1: For everything we throw away Mourn for your families Mourn for your enemies Sing to the stars Console our grieving hearts
2: So you referenced documentaries. I started watching one tonight. Um, I don't know if you're like me, but I do dishes like a machine. I come home from work and I immediately do the dishes before I even eat dinner. I just don't like dishes in the sink. What's funny is I'll leave them in the dishwasher and I'll leave them to dry for weeks. I just don't like dishes in the sink. So I'm watching. I don't know if you've seen it. It's. I think it's a documentary. It's. It's proposed like one called Salute. It's on Amazon Prime, and it's about um, the uh, Mexico Olympics from I think 1968. 68? During, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's got the. I can't remember the name of the runners because I just haven't watched enough of the thing. But they. They. You know. They. They. They protest basically on the stand. But it's told from the viewpoint of also the Australian that was there with him and. All of the stuff that was happening with like Aboriginal voting rights and all that stuff in Australia at the time that just tonight I was like, I didn't know any of that. Now, I don't live in Australia, but I also have other people that I know in Australia and they definitely know my history. And I'm like, well, man, now I'm lazy. I really need to <laughs> suck this up. But I had some drying a dish. And so the thought that I had was why? Because my dad was always one that said, you know, Seth, I'm going to teach you the history and then you're going to learn the history that you need to know for the school to get the good grades, but I'm going to teach you the history. Now, hindsight, I realize how much he sanitized that to the history that he wanted to teach. And I probably do the same thing. I probably err on the side of, of a different, I probably swung that pendulum the other way with my kids, but I, I was just sitting there thinking, I'm like, why did I not hear about any of this? Like, I don't, I know we've talked around this, my dad and I, and my mom and I, um, but I never was taught any of this. And it definitely is not in the school, in the, in the, um, in the history books, that at least not the McGraw Hill one that I had in Texas growing up. Um, that big, huge, massive gold one. This was my thought. And so this is why I asked the question. So my dad would have been like six or seven at the time that all that's happening. And I know my daughter, she understands right now, she's about that age. She understands what's happening, but I don't know that it has any impact because just there's no it just there's just no way for it to have the impact. And then you you fast forward 10 years and that's right on the drug war, war on drugs. And that's, you know, then I'm bored. You know, here we go, we're doing all this thing. And all of that is sanitized inside my dad's own body. And so my question is, and I found myself thinking, I'm like, how do I do this well? How do I talk about this in such a way that um, I can recognize my privilege and I can show that to my kids because what I'm fearful for is, I can see it unfolding before our eyes like, Everything that's happened before continually happens again and we never seem to learn from it. And I honestly blame that on the parents, blame that on my dad's parents and I'm blaming it on my dad as well. They just didn't teach and it's happening again right now. And so I want to do better. Um, and I know we talked about, you know, all listening more than asking questions and whatnot. But as a parent, because you said you have kids as well, like what are you doing personally to ensure that your children are aware of how to use a voice in such a way not for equality not I I want to say it wrong I don't want to say it wrong so I'm sure you've seen that meme or that cartoon of you know here's what equality is or or whatever and they're trying to watch a baseball thing and there's like different um Have you seen this you know what I'm talking about no, I'll have to try to find it oh, I can't damn. I can't remember the three things so there's basically a, a minority um family at the back of a baseball field and they're trying to watch the game and so you see a white guy just standing there, and he's about six foot two. You got uh, like a Hispanic or an African American guy, and he's on a smaller box, and that's just so he can see over it. And then there's a huge box, and it has the um, it has a kid, like a small like Hispanic kid or whatever, trying to watch the game. And it basically says, "This is equality." And then there's another one that basically says, you know, this is fair. And so they're just changing the box sizes. And then someone recently is just like, no, 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 here's what we're asking for. We just want the fence gone. There's no reason to have any of these stupid boxes. We just get rid of the freaking fence. And that's a ramble. And I'm not sure how I got from my kids to there. But no, ha- no, what I'm, are, I'm tracking with you. I'm yeah. With you. Yeah. So yeah. I don't, because I, I don't actually know. Like I thought about this an hour ago. I'm sitting there going, how do I do this? Because if I do it wrong, um, I'm going to come off prideful. <laughs> or arrogant, or privileged. If I do it right, he's gonna have to deal with that right now, my 11 year old. Like he'll have to deal with that if they're allowed to start school again, because it's not gonna go away. It's obviously not, it, it never has gone away. So it's not going away. Right, so I think I think the,
0: so so mine are 22, my oldest is 22, my son is in return 17, and my mm. youngest is nine. Mm. And so the other day my oldest came home and it's right after this with Candace Owens had just put out her video, where she was saying about she was lamenting, uh, if I can say that, the idea that the African American community or anybody was creating a hero out of George Floyd and had done this long tirade about why he wasn't somebody worth, um, mm-hmm. worth worshipping or worth deifying in that way. Uh, now we can talk about the specifics of that here in just a moment, but my point, to your, my answer to your question was. My 22 year old daughter came home and she wanted to ask me about what I thought about it. And I know your kids are not 22; they're younger. Mm -hmm. But it goes with all my kids. Because one of the things I've realized is that you can—I have made it fundamentally clear, uh, to the point, uh, probably, probably way too much—that from day one, the N word, even in a song, anything like that, in my house is not okay. We do not do that. But the world. The, the world out there and any messaging that, that comes with it, especially with our, our favorite punching bag around social media, but just information outside of the home is going to get in. And I don't think no matter how hard you try, this goes back to comfort. This goes back to this, this idea that we have to protect. We have to be the, have to create this barrier. And then we have to be the filter that provides the proper perspective to our kids so that they know what the right thing is to go out in front of the world so that they're not, they don't have a blind spot, so they're not aware. So they're, but also we want it to be balanced and, and, and amazing and we, so they can be productive and ultimately not part of the problem. That's a tough ask, I think, for a parent. Uh, I th- this is where I would start to dive diverse or diversify a bit into the idea that it's a com- we need a community to come together. We need people. You need multiple viewpoints. I would argue that your kids need something else besides your voice. To make your voice clearer Mm. to them. Because if all you ever hear is two voices, and I was going to be very stereotypical around parents, mom and dad, the only input that somebody gets, if the only input you got as a kid was only your mom and dad, fundamentally, I don't think it's possible for parents to do enough to become the all-encompassing voice to prepare anybody, no matter how good or bad the ability of a child is, to be prepared to walk out into this great big world that we're a part of. And, and because this, 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 I think it does run it does run the gamut a little bit of where some of the problems are. We pull everything in here. We want to take care of our own. We want to take care of those in our circle. And then just, if we're okay here, everything will be okay. Well, the problem, and it reminds me a little bit of, of Janet's episode that she did. I'm, we talked about a super fans. She talked about, it was the part that really got to me. And she talked about her friend recognizing that her heart beat in her son's heart. And when you have kids, man, it is different because there's a, it, your, your heart is there. Like it, it's almost scary to the point where like, there's nothing that's ever going to break. And, you know, and I think you're like me and I don't know not everybody's like that. So I'm just going to be a little bit generic here about this. For me, it, my heart is in Port Aransas right now. Mm-hmm. And it's in there four times, not just my kids, but my wife. That when you're able to have that, when you share that, there's something that goes on there. I think to part of this is that we have to be able to take that heart of ours and find it in everybody else. And I mean anywhere else. And I mean whether it's whether it's George Floyd or whether it's David Duke or whether whoever it is out there, and this becomes worse difficult. The idea that we can just circle the wagons and just take care of ourselves and filter this properly, nothing against your parenting skills, your wife's parenting skills, you can do that to a point. But the world is going to come in. And so I would say, at some level, it is our job as parents, the one job that we should have, the one job we should do, the job that, I'm trying to say this right, that I, I wish that I had been better prepared for was how to go out and, to, and to prepare you for the world and to give you the best tools you can for them to have that introspect and that retrospect and the ability to go out and find these situations and go in and have the ability and the openness to be able to to, to stumble into this, stumble into these questions in these situations. As if our goal is to try to prepare our kids or anybody so that they can go out there and we'll never say the wrong thing. They're never gonna do the wrong, they're never the wrong, they're always gonna say the right thing at the right time. You know, it's like PC overdrive in a sense of just we can't I have to be so afraid. Should I even do this podcast? What if I say one thing and somebody takes it to me as a racist you got to step into that and that grace you talked about before. This is where grace comes in. Allow me to say something stupid a little bit. Allow me my moment. You're sitting there going, how could you be so stupid in 1986 not to understand how the crack epidemic was destroying neighborhoods and it was, in, and it was, you know, it was caused by this thing over here. I didn't know. I didn't know at 12. I didn't know at 22. I didn't know at 32. I didn't know at 42. I wasn't aware of it. I did not have it. I did not know. And yeah. so I think part of part of this to your question, and I, and I hope this tries, I hope this answers it in a sense. I think part of the problem is in in the perspective that it's this there's that it's not a communal thing. We are it's we're seeing this we're seeing the, right now. We have this virus running around that's threatening the lives of every single person in the in the number one, it's almost like absence, like the number one best way to avoid it is if we never have human contact. If we if we isolate every single human being, you know, six feet or more or whatever. And never touched, then communicable diseases, it would never, never, never reign. But that is not in what we are. That is not how we were designed. And so the more we the more we separate, I think about our buddy Alexander. May always this this idea of unifying this idea that we are it's, it's together. There is, there are no borders, there are no differences, there are no races, there are none of these things. That means there's none of these things, which means it's communal. You and and, and I know it's now logistically, I understand. I, I can't help raise you, your kids from here but can you, in everybody that you engage with on every level, whether it's somebody else's children or a child here, or any person, an adult, because we focus on children so much and we leave middle-aged teenagers, adults, even to some extent, people that are older and we think they're okay, they've got it. They're, they're they're not kids anymore. They understand. They don't know any, there's a good chance they don't know any better either. They could be 50, 60, 70 years old and still not got it. So the idea that we, we need to cultivate, we need to take the time to sit down and talk to people to take down and sit down and listen to people, especially people that are completely different than us. And this, I think lends to those opportunities that you can then go back to your family, go back to your kids, share that experience with them. There is a little bit of a, you know, you can't sit and have it. you can't, you shouldn't watch, you know, 13th, the documentary with your eight year old son. It's not <laughs> a good, it's just not, it's going to miss, but, but be in tune with your kids and find out when that proper age is, mm-hmm. but bring them along. And I know this is tough because I want to protect my youngest, especially or all my kids. I want to throw up, you know, a massive wall and ramparts and keep the world away and, and, you know, do the, do the Alamo thing and let the, and never let the world in and never letting that come in. But then it just, then you would never experience, you'd never have the chance to experience any of this. You never have a chance to experience a life. So I, uh, a long-winded question or a long-winded way around answering that question because I think so much that comes into it, because I heard this conversation, I heard this same the other day, uh, somebody that I find very dear, we were talking about the issues and they were like, and it's the parents. And I thought, well, if it's the parent, okay, it's the chicken and egg thing a little bit. It's like, well, if it's always the parents that are causing the reason why the kids act the way that they do, well, then when did it, you know, so who was the first parent? Like, Where did it start then? And I'm not an original sin guy at all. I don't buy into that even the least bit. So I don't think it's it wasn't brought to us by an apple and by, by a woman. however minute, However yeah, long ago? I'm with you, right? So it's that's not where it started. So it's it's within the capacity. So we and we can't just blame parents. We can't just blame. Well, can't it, it's it's all of us contributing to this. And that's that's the real crux, I think, of part of this issue as well.
2: Parenting is hard, and I'm I'm happy to let you come and help parent. I'm not ever. <laughs> I'm not really the best parent. I, I struggle. I, all today was a good night. Yesterday, not so good um so
0: well, let me well, let me ask you a question to that i mean do you do you again not i mean between you even between with two competent people like i, I my wife and i are like pretty competent people i feel even before the uh, the pandemic and homeschooling 95 percent of the time i feel like a complete failure as a parent
2: oh it's probably higher than 95 percent of the time no. yeah yeah there's a part of me so in the back of my brain it's probably just the way that i like i work like I know that the habits that my kids are forming now are what is what they're going to take into their life. Unless there's some massive shift. And part of me hopes that I'm helping to foster them to learn how to make good habits. Cause I don't want to make their habits for them because I, that was partly done for me. And it made it really painful when I, you know, after college and everything, I'm like, I was lied to. I was lied to about faith, religion, race, sexual, all of you lied to me. Every, <laughs> you, you all suck. And, you know, I don't want that for my kids. But I also know, like, my son's 11. Like, whatever habits he forms in the next three to four years, he's going to be 16. And he's going to be the small version of whatever he's going to be for the considerable next few decades. And then every once in a while, I look back and I'm like, I'm really worried here that I'm going to do it wrong. And then my wife's like, well, you can't be like that. I'm like, yeah, but, I mean... This isn't, some days I feel like it's just not going well. I'm like, this isn't going to work well. There are other days, like I took him to um, D.C. last year in September, and we're in the Rotunda, and I don't know if you've ever been up in the Rotunda in the Capitol building. Hey, it's beautiful. Just email your congressman, and they'll get you passes, and you go right on in there. They do a background check. Make sure you're not going to blow the thing up or whatever. <laughs> but we were on a tour in there, and in the top of the Rotunda are all of these busts of, like, you know, uh, Martin Luther King is in there, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson. Um, let's just say it's Grant, Abraham Lincoln, you know, all these massive busts. And there's these beautiful like paintings. And I don't know if they're frescoes or what kind of paintings are, but they are massive. They must be 20 foot tall, 30 foot wide. And there's like eight of them, I think, and they round the whole rotunda, which is also pretty massive. One of them in there is Columbus in the United States. And the tour guide asked, Um, you know, does anybody have any questions? And my son pipes up, real question why is Columbus on the wall? Cause he was never in the United States and all the adults are like, you know, stepping back and the tour guide was like, great question, you know, and she tried her best to answer it in the most political way possible. Um, and then at that moment though, I'm like, that's the right question. I'm doing something right. That's the right question um and a really honest one too like it was a i didn't think to ask the question i just kind of got annoyed and rolled my eyes and didn't use it as a teachable moment because i don't know that in front of 400 people is the best time to have a history lesson like that you know and 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 nuance it but i was also really proud of the question and then there are other days that it all blows up and i just i feel like i'm failing the whole planet
0: (laughs) well well, i think we feel that way towards not just our children because and i get that completely because i keep telling my wife that our my son is two years away from you know graduating high school and what in the world are you going to do next buddy? Yeah. I mean, it's, Cause you're the, not living here. Get out. <laughs> yeah. And it it's just like, and so I, I think we, you know, you know, to all that, and you know, we, I think we have to have a little bit of faith. Faith seems like it's such a cliche. I, I like I'm keeping these kind of cliche areas. There's, there's I just don't think there's a way we can't force that. And I think back when I was that age and when it, it I mean, I can remember thinking. I mean, I didn't. I didn't. It never even dawned on me that it would be. It was a big deal to like join the navy 18 and go see the world. And like, I look. I think about my son and my daughter and their age and what I was doing at their age, and I just. It just mortifies me to think that somebody that young, yeah, would be put in a position of that kind of authority. But somehow you make it through, and it's not that you're just going to give up and go. Oh, well, hopefully they'll make it through the minefield. That's not it either. I, it's just this balance. It's, it reminds me of again. I can go back to our friend Alexander. The idea of shalom and what he taught me about shalom, and it's and it goes into the idea of like, what do we do about this? You know, are we solving this problem right now? You and I, no, are is the issue still there? Yes. Are there people that are out there, you know, marching for one extreme or the other, and and believing in their heart that we should literally draw a line in the sand of this country and put white people on one side and black people on the other, or everybody else? There are people that believe that. So, how do you live in the tension hmm. of that? And I used to think, as part of this trend, part of the overwhelming part of it, I, I thought peace, coming up as a red-blooded American, serving in the military, every movie I ever watched was about good guys beating bad guys, that what we needed to do was eliminate that thing over there that's bad. And it's kind of this dualistic approach of remove all the bad, almost, you know, remnants of, uh, you know, really the final solution, the whole idea behind the Holocaust wasn't just to be mean, but it was a, there was an engineering aspect to it in terms of their mindset. If we can alleviate this negative part of the world, we will not have a treaty of Versailles ever again. If we eliminate this part of our world, we'll never have a, we'll never lose in battle again. This eliminating this thing over here will then equate into this over there. And it becomes so so focused on the result, and so like so hyper focused on good guys beating the bad guys that we that we, we lose sight completely, lose sight of. That, that that's not the thing, right? The tension that we have to live with back to what he was saying and what he talks about in Shalom is how do we sit in that? How do we sit in that? How do we sit with the idea that people that, the guy that, the guy, the people that killed the four girls in the church in Alabama, that fire, I mean, in the church, blew it up with four little girls sitting in. it? Mm-hmm.
1: How
0: how do we reconcile with
1: that? How do we reconcile
0: with the kid? I, and I forget his name. South Carolina who just walked into a, a prayer meeting, at a historically black church with nine other people, and then just pulled out a gun, and started shooting them. How do we, how do we deal with that? We can come up with a bunch of fancy words. We can come up with, try to come up with the right answers, try to come up with some sort of legislation or where I've had real struggles too is, well, we can put him in prison for a long time. That'll solve the problem. That makes everything better. Mm. Everybody's justice has been served mm. in that shalom, as, I, as I've come to appreciate it, is how do we live in the tension of that moment? And it doesn't mean that we rest in it. It doesn't mean we accept it for this, let it, let it stay there. But in the process of this, of this journey, as we go down and through it, for us to be able to, to get to these next steps or to go down these paths, as we like to call them, we, we have to do so not knowing if our kids are going to be okay. Your wife works in the pediatric cancer world. So does my wife. Mine has My wife has for 27 years. If your wife's anything like my wife, we didn't talk about this part of it, but our kids get a runny nose. Our kids have a, a sore leg. What's yeah. the first thing our wives think yeah, of? It's the end of the world. have cancer. Yeah, definitely. Right? Yeah, because that's all I see. She, yeah. Right. And she'll look at me and she'll go, well, what do you think they have? And I'll be like, well, I think they have lupus or I think they're, they have MS or they have cancer. <laughs> and, and, my art, and, she's, and then she started kind of gets, you know, why are you saying that? I'm like, well, what if they do? There's yeah. nothing that says our kids won't get cancer. Yeah, Just because you work for it and I've helped raise a bunch of money for it and we've done all this stuff or because we're good people or as if that doesn't mean our kids won't get cancer. And it doesn't mean that, our, that if one of our kids get cancer that the other kid won't get cancer too. Because we, we've seen this. And so I, I say all that to try to make the point in that living in the tension of the moment and, and understanding that we don't know what, we don't know. I don't know what this is. And being okay with that. And then what we do know, if it's something that causes, I, I keep going, part of this that I started prayer is I, I keep thinking about uh, the verse, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Why did he weep at that moment? Why did he weep at that point? Because he didn't know what else to say. And sometimes we just have to lament. And sometimes we just have to cry in the moment and 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 hold that tension for what it is and move through it. And, and I think that's part of this. And it goes into this idea I said before, where, it is not in our culture, not in our DNA, definitely not from a uh, economic, uh, consumer-based standpoint. Everything in our world has been for the last, gosh, I don't know, decades of pursuing comfort and joy and ease and all the rest of this stuff. And we, I think we have forgotten how how to work through these things. It doesn't mean we don't know how to work. You talked about it. we We do the nine-to-five. We can do our part. We can mm-hmm. work hard, you know, in, in terms of that. But I mean, the internal work. Yeah. That it takes, this goes back to this, too. Is, to look inside, to look into, to really dive into these issues, and go down as far as we can, and, and try to understand what is really going on here, and not come into it with a preconceived notion of something. Why? Why can't they just? Why can't they just get a job? Just get a job and, and contribute to society. Don't break the law, or, or the rest of this stuff. And it just those, those but it's not easy. Parenting is not easy. Living is not easy. You running a podcast isn't easy. No, these things are easy, but the fruit at the end of the day, that third path that we like to talk about, what comes from that is directly in direct relation, I believe, and in my experience, from the suffering and it's in this in the strain and the and the shalom that's in that second path. And it doesn't mean ignoring it. That's where the work is done will produce a fruit that I think is indicative of the effort that is put in. Last
2: two questions. One of these does not fit the topic at all, but I've yet to miss talking to a person on Texas and not, from Texas and not asking this question. And we're not going to start now. So you've traveled to 33 countries, and you know all over the all over the places. And so you have to choose between In and Out Burger and Water Burger. You know, being from Texas, I, I would just like to know what the proper choice is.
0: So there's not a third choice. No, nope. so those are those are the
2: only two only options. You can choices, just right, do yeah. In and Out or Water Burger.
0: So what's funny is down here in where I'm at, there's this little city called Stafford, which is in between. That It's done very well. They have an In-N-Out burger there. Mm-hmm. It has now been there for, I think it's going on almost a year. And I have yet to drive by there at any point in time of the day where there's not a line. Mm. That takes forever it's because it's,
2: it's, it's new. It's
0: because it's new. And there's a nostalgia and all this other stuff. <laughs> uh, but if I had to choose between the two, just from a pure taste standpoint, Yes, whatever.
2: Perfect. Of perfect. That this is, is the valid answer. Because if you choose wrong, I just delete the whole episode. It's just gone. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I know from listening. I know. I knew this was coming. It's okay. You know, I want, in my head, when I first heard you say that to somebody
0: from Texas, I was like, Seth, I don't even like fast food anymore. And it becomes this whole thing about Texas and pride and how we think of it. That nuance but yes if i was if, if you if i had to choose it would definitely be a
2: so the best part of that is people have to google it and and honestly you said something earlier as well of like you know i'm just gonna alamo up like with the kids or whatever yeah. and that'll be another thing if you're listening in this and you're not from texas and you've only <laughs> ever heard of people say remember the alamo you probably don't know what that means and you really should hit pause right now and google it because if you're not from that culture it's kind of yeah it doesn't have a lot of
0: <laughs> a lot of meaning we have our own we have our own language. Yeah,
2: absolutely. Yeah. Now the last question, which probably won't come as a surprise either. So different as well from the topic overall, but if you were to try to wrap your brain around trying to say, Hey, when I say the word God or the divine or whatever word you want to give it, what is that for you? Like what would you say to that?
0: Well, I have to say that I've been thinking about this question probably more than any other in terms of how I could answer this. And I found myself answering it so many different ways. (laughs) I don't even know which way I'm going to go in terms of the, because I I have, I love your podcast. I love listening to it. It is on, it is in my queue. I I look for it. And I really love that you asked this question because I think it's crucial. And I think it's vital, uh, not only for, to hear people's answers, but also for us to write, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. What is the divine? And as of right now where I go, God can be anything that you want. I think God can be God can be a hammer, God can be uh, hateful, God can be loving. I think we have I think we have allowed for God to exist in any capacity and in any way without doing the work of what it, what it really means and this is where I think about our friend Janet because that was the episode or the Nomad, Nomad podcast that really obliterated my kind of viewpoint of the divine. Of just making God this capital G-O-D that's up there kind of in charge, created all this and somehow has been trying to tell us what to do about it since then. And that again, part of this overwhelming nature of what I don't know, and what I don't understand, and despite the fact of having a huge love for history and recognizing that it truly is a curse and a blessing that as you know more, you know less. But at the same time, feeling like I'd been talking to God my whole life, that I had an idea of what it was, but really looking at that apophatic, theology in terms of what I believe it is from a pure sense, which is which you can't adequately describe with words and you shouldn't to, to think of it's, could it be, it's beyond what I think it is.
1: Hmm. It,
0: it is, it is nothing. It is everything. It is neither. It is both. It is so much. It's, it's all of those things and yet it is everywhere, but it is nowhere. And it sounds again, it's kind of hokey, kind of like you know, hippie kind of stuff. But quite honestly, in my experience of all of this, Man, I, I don't even, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what God is, but I feel like I know what God is. It's all of those things. It's none of those things. Uh, but it's ultimately what I think. But I think there's something, and, and, I, and I'm willing to say that I don't know what's next. I don't, I don't really know. I know what I like to believe is next. I know what I like to see is next. I know like where I see God in this. Because I can see God now, and I think you even said it before, don't give me a sunset. But I'll tell you, man, if, I can remember as a young guy watching a sunrise for the first time in boot camp because I'd never gotten up that early in my life. And there's something magical about all of those things. Mm-hmm. There's something There's something in God in a rock. There's something in God in you and who you are and the people that are listening to this in all of these things. And and I think just trying to figure out and resting in this this tension of not being able to answer that question properly, but knowing that there's an answer there is how I it's how I see the divine, is how I see God, is how I, it's where I begin the journey and where I begin my understanding of that is realizing that I don't. I'm just trying to recognize and understand and go through that journey and do what I can with what I learn and do what I can with what I, and all those different paths and honor the process and honor the gift because we didn't ask to be here. The one thing I do know for sure I, didn't, I don't remember you know, buying a ticket for this ride, but I'm here. So what am I going to do about it? I almost feel like,
1: you know, I don't want
0: end with this last thing around where I've kind of concluded around with another thing about God. The ultimate aspect of the relationship with the divine, however you want to describe it in terms of words, I have is I think what the ultimate goal is, is, or what the ultimate hope is, I think, I was going to be a little bit definitive, is that God, we ultimately choose to love God in spite of all of these things. What I mean by that is this has been hidden only recently around. There's a lot of reasons to lament, not just the ones that are human caused, but in the end, if, if God was the creator, as I believe, and all this kind of was part of this thing going on over here, how do we reconcile ultimately, not just with the things we've done, but if we've watched a kid die of bone cancer. I think about Stephen Fry and his argument where he would just mic drop God. Bone cancer and the through the, the seed sea fly that was planting larvae in a kid's eyes. That even if God exists, He was going to mic drop him because you made bone cancer possible. And so there's I don't even care if you are real. There's no way you can justify that that suffering. And look at the suffering that we have been put on each other, or just as existed in, in nature, just as it is. That can I can I go through all of these kind of? We have the rights that we have. We have a man killed and stepped on for eight minutes and forty six seconds until the very life of him expels out. And this guy doesn't even have the wherewithal to think at that moment that he's actually doing something harmful to somebody to the point where he ended the person's life. yeah. And that, how, does that ex- how do we exist with that? And I don't think that's just a challenge for race or a challenge for you and I. How do we deal with that relative to the divine? How do we reconcile that? And can we go through all of these things? Can we see all these things? Can we look at history? Can we see the stories and lament of the suffering that we've gone through and still choose to be faithful and love God? anyway so my hope is that that's part of what god is too yeah
2: yeah i like that plug the places sean where do you want people to go where do they hear more of you like where where are the places
0: Uh, i kind of i want to kind of get a little bit of a little bit of a page out of janet's book yes i have a podcast you're more than welcome to listen to it but i would the goal of the podcast is what i would really like people to do do some introspective work on yourself and ask yourself where you are in all this before you have a conversation with somebody else. Do some homework. Do some introspection. Understand where your place is in the world and where it's been. And then go out and talk to somebody that you don't know. This is our first real time to talk outside a couple of times on the phone and yeah. on, on text messages. This is enriching and beautiful. All these conversations that I've had, and I know the ones you've had, they, they fundamentally change who you are even though you know i didn't expect it to do all of the things that it did that's part of the overwhelming side i would encourage people don't oh, just go listen but there's some amazing people and conversations not because of me but because of the people i had on and some some things just like yours but i would want people more than going and seeing or listening to my show for downloads i would rather them go and find this moment for yourself of helping you define redefine something that you didn't know that would be my that would be my desire more than anything for people to go do yeah. besides find me, but you're more than welcome to email me or reach out to me, Sean at the come to the table podcast.com. More than happy to connect with people that way. I don't do social media anymore. I got completely off, but I will reply to emails and that kind of thing and have a conversation.
2: There should be social media anonymous. It's a heck of a drug. So <laughs> yeah, 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 I wish I could figure out how to get off of social media. I just haven't figured it out yet, but thank you so much for your time tonight. I really enjoyed it. Oh no, man, I, I
0: again thank you for, for providing me the opportunity to come on this and do this. And it's an honor. I love the show, man. Keep it up, brother. I love what you're doing.
2: I will. You too. Thanks.
1: Make space for the spent. Feel the lament. Break your vows to the powers. Plant trees and grow flowers. Share the resources. So
2: there will be another re release next week and we're gonna end up the month of July with a with a very hard conversation about the Me Too movement, the church, sexual purity, purity culture, rape. And so I want to warn you going into that conversation. I've already sent that book out to the patron supporters of the show that support at that level. And I want to thank every single patron supporter that joins into the show. So if you can do that, consider doing so. But every single one of you, thank you so much. And if you cannot financially support the show, that is okay. Totally okay. The world is a hard place this year. 2020 to me reminds me of when I tried to learn how to drive a stick shift. It lurched and it started and it stopped and it was painful and I broke things. And so I get it. If you can't support the show financially, share it on social media. Tell a friend. Follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. Support the show however you can. Rate and review. Grab a shirt or a coffee mug or whatever out of the store. But mostly, I just wanted to say thank you for listening. A very special thanks today to David Benjamin Blower for the use of his music. Uh, The track you heard today is called The Soil from his album called We Really Existed and We Really Did This. I hope that you've been blessed. I hope that stress is manageable for each and every one of us. Know that you're beloved. I can't wait for the next time.
1: Feel the joy, and be still, and be still. Clap your hands to your mouth, let your pride go south, put your hand on your head, make terms with the dead, Put your hands on your face Too late to learn from my mistakes Put your hand on your heart Can we stop what we start? Sisters to the leverage Brothers to the edges Youth to the fore This big future is yours All ye of noble bone Join the scum of the earth Gather round the powers there's the power that can save us All citizens, Put your hands in the soil And feel the growth Can you feel the joy And be still And be still And be still And be still And be still